Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan. Here, Jordan is starting to wrap up his discussion of Jacob's wrestling with God at Peniel. In this talk, he'll discuss some very interesting things in the passage, such as Israel not eating the sinew on the socket of the thigh, which is where Jacob was touched. He'll talk about Israel as a nation of sacrifices and how Israel experiences death so that others can experience life. He'll talk about clean and unclean animals and how animals are symbolic of human beings. Finally, he'll touch on circumcision as it relates to sacrifice. This is a really fantastic talk from James Jordan, and we really think you'll enjoy it. Before we get to the episode, we wanted to let you know that we have a new ebook out for you. If you sign up for our newsletter in Medias Race, you'll receive an email with a new ebook from Peter Lightheart entitled Pado Communion, The Church, and the Gospel. Don't worry if you're already on the email list because it will be included in the next email. So, to sign up for In Medias Race and to receive that ebook, I have a link down there in the show notes for you. With that, we hope that you are sharpened and encouraged by this episode. And here is James Jordan discussing Jacob at Peniel in Genesis chapter 32. We're in Genesis 32, and I need to read this again because we need to get it before us again. Genesis 32, and following the English first numberings, verse 24. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the coming up of dawn. And when he saw he could not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. The socket of Jacob's thigh had been dislocated as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for dawn has come up. And he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Not as Jacob shall your name be henceforth uttered, but rather as Israel, for you have fought with God and men, and you have prevailed. And Jacob asked and said, Pray tell me your name. But he said, Now why do you ask after my name? And he gave him farewell blessing there. Jacob called the name of the place God's face, Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life has been saved. And the sun rose on him as he crossed by Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. For that reason, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew that is on the socket of the thigh until this day, for he had touched the socket of Jacob's thigh at the sinew. We've considered this for several weeks, and we'll spend at least one more week on it after today, I'm sure. Jacob encounters this man at night, doesn't know who he is. It's basically the person who's been wrestling with him his whole life. He says, I've seen God face to face here at the end. In the next chapter, in verse 10, he says to Esau, after all, I have seen your face as one sees the face of God. In context, that has to at least have some significant relationship between the two. It was Esau who wrestled with him in the womb, and now for... Ninety-seven years, various people have been wrestling with him, and now it's come to an end, or it's coming to an end. There won't be any more wrestling with Jacob. Jacob has arrived at whatever this procedure, this uh, course of education was designed to bring him to. He has fought with God and men, and he has prevailed. The dawn coming up is a sign of the new life that is coming to him now, and the rising of the sun in its might. We looked at that last time. Face of God, I think that the sun shining is 
parallel to the face of God, to see God's face, which is glorious, is parallel here to the rising of the sun. Later on, the Messiah is called the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness, who rises with healing in his wings and the like. So, And we were saying on verse 31 that the limp that he has here is a sign of true power because it's a sign that he's considered to be among those who have a foot wound. Genesis 3 says everybody gets a head wound or a foot wound and gets his head crushed or his foot bruised, and Jacob is among those. And we had made the comment that true power lies in humility and sacrifice. And that brings us to this odd statement in verse 32, verse 33 in the Hebrew numbering, which the Fox translation has. Therefore the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew that is on the socket of the thigh until this day, for he had touched the socket of Jacob's thigh at the sinew. The whole nation doesn't eat it. And we were interested in uncovering what kind of thinking lies behind that. Why wouldn't they eat it? Is that superstition or what? Well, we can uncover some of the way of thinking that lies behind that and just make some comments on it. First of all, I've got down here, Israel is a nation of limpers. Well, I say that because the change from the name Jacob to Israel and this wound near his organs of generation means that the name Israel is not only his personal name, but also the name of the collection of sons that come from his loins. So you find in the Bible that the people are called Israel. They're almost never called Jacob. Sometimes they are. In fact, we'll get to this passage in Amos in a little while, either this week or next week. O Lord, Jacob is small. No referring to the nation. But almost always the nation is called Israel, a whole nation of God wrestlers, a whole nation of those who limp, and we'll be exploring what that means in a few minutes. Similarly, the rite of circumcision and the sacrifice of Isaac, which connects to it, mean that this entire nation is a nation of sacrifices. They are to suffer and die on behalf of all the other nations of the world, essentially. So Israel experiences death so that the other nations can experience life. Circumcision is one form of that. Other nations, converted Gentiles, are not required to be circumcised. They don't have to cut off part of their body. They don't have to give up their sons, which is what circumcision means. We'll get to this in a minute. But cutting off the foreskin and separating it is the same as cutting off your son and separating him, giving him up. Converted Gentiles don't have to do that. And they don't experience the laws of uncleanness, which makes you symbolically dead almost every time you turn around. Only Israel is experiencing all of this death, even though the laws of uncleanness are, except for leprosy, they're little more than inconveniences. Still, they all symbolize death. Israel is suffering, dying, symbolically coming under death, so that the nations can live. Now, all of that, of course, focuses down to Jesus. Jesus is the one who dies that we might live. But Israel is set up, and Jesus is the true Israelite. 
So now we have a couple of things rolled in here. These are the new Isaacs, the sons, the sons of Israel. There'll be sacrifices, a nation of sacrifices, a nation of people dedicated to God, which is what an offering is, people who are experiencing death for others in a substitutionary way. They're going to do that. And they will be characterized by limping, just as Jacob is. If Jacob, the forefather, can't walk very well and appears to be very weak, then all of those who come out from him won't walk very well and will appear to be weak and will have that same characteristic. Now, God is telling them two things. One, you are to sacrifice and you are to be weak. We're familiar with New Testament language like this. When I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. Those who would be great in the kingdom must be servants of all. Let each esteem the other better than himself. All of these are related concepts. Israel is being told that if they reject that, if they decide they want to become a powerful nation, if they want to have a king like all the other nations, if they go for glory and honor, they're rejecting their calling. If they say, we don't want to limp, we don't want the disgrace, we don't want this weakness, then they cease to be Israel. They cease to be what God is calling them to be. So that's where we can start in thinking about this, that it's not just Jacob as an individual who's going to limp and have difficulty walking and appear to be weak, but it's all of his children. Therefore, the children of Israel associate themselves with this. And as long as the children of Israel understand that they are to rejoice in their apparent weakness, then they will celebrate that by not eating the sinew that's on the socket of the thigh. That's an affirmation of their calling. Now, why not eat it? Why not something else? Well, we can go on. The sacrifices represent Israel. I've got down here, you know, I made these notes up almost a month ago, and I'm not sure, I think that was more or less part of the same idea I was giving before, that Israel is a nation of sacrifices. The animals that they offer represent them, which shows again that they are a nation of sacrifices. Now, we can go on and talk about these animals that you eat. Noah sacrificed to God all the clean animals, not just the five animals that God gives to Abraham to offer, which are ox, goat, sheep, dove, and pigeon. But it says that Noah came off the ark and he offered all a clean animals, which would be put on an altar, a deer and gazelle and whatever else, the chickens, clean animals as well as sacrificial animals. You can eat those animals. And those are the ones that Israel can eat. Thus, broadly, before Sinai, all clean animals are sacrifices, which means at this time, before we get to Mount Sinai, all the animals that are eaten have a sacrificial aspect. So, what animals can we eat? Well, we can eat deer. Do we eat the sinew that's on the socket of the thigh of a deer, whatever it is? No. Why? Because God touched it. Now, if we go to the law, we can find explanation. The holy parts of the sacrifices, which are called the fat, are not to be eaten by men. You've got a sacrifice called the peace offering, 
that's divided up. That's in Leviticus 3. And the priest eats part of it, and you eat part of it, and part of it is put on the altar for God, and the part that's put on the altar for God is called the fat, and I've got it in quotation marks because it doesn't just mean what we think of as fat, but it's the liver and the innermost parts, and those are considered too holy. The things that are too holy, people aren't supposed to eat. Moreover, the blood that is in the animal is considered holy because that's where the life is. The life is in the blood. Life is holiness. Therefore, you pour out the blood, you don't drink it. The parts that you don't eat are the holy parts. You don't eat unclean animals at all. But of a clean animal, the part you don't eat is the holy part. If it's a clean animal, it doesn't have any unclean parts. So you can eat all of it. But if it's got a holy part, you don't eat that. So the part that you don't eat here is not because it's unclean or bad. It's because it's too holy. Because God touched it. God touched it, makes it holy, means it belongs to Him. And continuing not to eat that is to continue to give that part to God and an affirmation then that you participate in what it means to limp and be like Jacob. And I think we just have to understand that we don't think of animals the way they did. But these animals have been set up as symbolic equivalents of human beings. The flock of Jacob is just like his sons. The parts of the flock you eat are like incorporating people into yourself. And whatever animals this is talking about, right, and told, they don't eat that part because it's holy. And this is an affirmation that they are part of the community of people that limp, who are not seeking glory and honor, but who are satisfied to be outwardly humble. Now, that would have been nice to have done that before when we were still looking at the passage verse by verse, but there we are. Now, let's talk about some themes that are in here because that'll be a little bit easier to talk about than to just try to finish up one last verse that hangs on from two weeks ago. I'd like to talk about circumcision and this foot wound, this thigh wound, how they relate and some of the larger ways in which this comes up in the Bible. Genesis 17 is the passage where God told Abraham from now on you're to circumcise the foreskin of all of your people. This is my covenant that you're to keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin that it may serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. At eight days old, every male among you shall be circumcised throughout your generations, whether house-born or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your seed. So anybody incorporated into the household. Circumcised, yes, circumcised shall be your house-born and your money-bought slaves, your adopted sons and your purchased slaves so that my covenant may be in your flesh as a covenant of the ages. But a foreskin male who does not have the foreskin of his flesh circumcised, that person shall be cut off from his kinspeople. He has violated my covenant. And as for your wife Sarai, my princess, you shall not call her name Sarai, for Sarah, princess, is her name. And then he says, 
He will have a son named Laughter. These things are all related. Circumcision has a bunch of different meanings. They're all compacted together. And let's just expand on these because this wound on the inside of the thigh here, see, right here, is an extension of circumcision. First of all, this genital wound seems to kill, but actually only after it happens does Sarah conceive. Sarah's name is changed from Abraham's princess to God's princess, essentially. She's unable to conceive, and what this shows us is that life comes out of death. That there is some type of death or sacrifice that has to happen in order to make new life possible. Ultimately, then, the cross is the circumcision, and the coming of the Holy Spirit to give new life is the conception of Isaac, the laughter that comes on the other side. And people aren't laughing when they're circumcised. They're in a lot of pain for a few days. So that's something that comes afterwards, laughter, Isaac. So that's one point to notice, that although it looks like death and it can be dangerous, what happens on the other side is life. In a very much larger way, the same thing happens in the book of Joshua. They come into the land, the first thing they do is circumcise themselves. That would have been a lot smarter, tactically, to do your circumcision on the other side of the Jordan while you're still in the wilderness, and then heal, and then come into the promised land and get near Jericho. But what actually happens is they come into the promised land, they get near to Jericho, and then they stop and circumcise themselves, which makes them incapacitated for nearly a week, sitting ducks. If the Jerichoites had any brains, they would have fallen upon Israel at that point and massacred them. Because the men could not have done much to stop it. You can't do much when you're in that much pain. And of course, we're going to see in just a couple of chapters exactly that when circumcision is used in exactly such a situation. So circumcision puts you into a state near death. You experience, for a few days at least, something that feels like death. It is death in a sense, as we'll see in just a moment. But what comes out on the other side is, well, the birth of Isaac. What comes out on the other side is the conquest of Canaan, the fall of Jericho. So there's all this life and victory that comes on the other side. Of course, generally, that's something that we can take home and say, well, I may be being put through some terrible circumstance here, but if God is in it, then I have reason to think that something good will come out of it on the other side. And the Bible tells this story a lot of different ways. Jeremiah undergoes a bunch of death experiences, and Jeremiah finally gets dragged off to Egypt, and Jeremiah as an individual doesn't ever get to any happy time on the other side. But Ezekiel does. Because the book of Jeremiah leads to Ezekiel and throws us to Ezekiel. And so the happy part is in Ezekiel. Although Ezekiel goes through terrible experience too. His wife is killed when Jerusalem is sacked. And he's not even allowed to mourn for her publicly because he's a priest. Doesn't mean he can't cry alone, but he can't tear his garments or anything in public. But there's happiness on the other side. Jeremiah doesn't even live to see it. So happiness may be in heaven... Your whole life might be circumcision and suffering, but the principle is here. And in a very compact way, 
this sacrificial wound leading to three or four days of incapacitation and death has life on the other side. Isaac, conquest of Canaan, restoration from exile, whatever. So that's the first thing we can say about it. And it's going to move into this wound in the thigh. Second, true power life comes only after death, after sacrifice. Well, really, I just made that point. So it's written down here, even in your notes. That's the way God has made the world, partly because we're sinners, that something has to be cut off and God makes us new through this. The old Adamic life before death has no power. Abraham cannot beget a son through Sarah. Sarah cannot conceive. There is no power because Adam brings everything into death, and in death there's no power. That's what circumcision does. Death is powerlessness. Your whole life is in death. Your whole life is powerless to do the things that you're supposed to do. Now, you may have the power to go out and kill six million Jews, but you don't have power to do what you need to do, which is what God wants, which is to bring in the kingdom. You have no power. But you go through three or four days of suffering with circumcision, and you come out the other side, there's power. So, the old Adamic life before circumcision has to go, has to be killed, experience death, and then there can be power. Now, the next thing about this is the circumcision makes a man into a sacrifice as all sacrifices are cut into pieces. Circumcision cuts you into two pieces, a little itty-bitty piece and a great big piece, but there's still two pieces. There's only one sacrifice that's not cut into pieces. What is it? Passover. Passover is cooked whole and then you cut it up into pieces. But all the rest are cut into pieces and put on the altar at stages. But even Passover is divided in half because you have to separate the blood out from the flesh. The blood is always separated from the flesh. You get the blood out into basins and you do something different with that from what you do with the flesh of the animal. So, one way or the other, you're cutting things in half. And circumcision cuts you in half. Now, if you cut in half, then you're dead. Maybe you remember from our studies in the past that the curse of the covenant is, may the Lord do so to me and more also, and you say that when you rip your garment. May the Lord tear me in half, and more also, leave my body to be eaten by the birds and the beasts. To be ripped in half, and then to be left out to be eaten by the birds and the beasts is the curse of the covenant. The blessing of the covenant is to be ripped in half and then put back together again and brought into God's presence. So when God made the covenant with Abraham, he had all these animals and he cut them in half and then the Spirit went between them and sewed them back together again. In circumcision, you're cut in half, but you're brought to life again and there's all this power on the other side. Everybody gets cut in half. You either get cut in half and put back together again by the Spirit of God in a new transfigured way, or you get cut in half and left out for the birds and the beasts to eat and you go to Sheol. That's where the imagery is, you see. But nobody in this world is having a happy life with no problems. 
There's nobody that's ever lived who hasn't felt torn up at one time or another. All the unbelievers out there have experienced feeling like their life is torn up. But if they don't have faith, then it's going to be torn up and eaten by the birds. Or if you are a Christian, then that experience has a different meaning and there's life on the other side. Well, circumcision makes you into a sacrifice because all animals are sacrifices are cut into pieces. And so Abraham is a sacrifice. And Isaac is a sacrifice. And Israel is a sacrifice. And Israel is to die for the world. And ultimately that focuses down on Jesus, who is the ultimate sacrifice, who dies for the world. But beforehand, the nation is set up to image that. Similarly, number five, circumcision makes a man a priest. In this case, a priest for the other nations. There's a different ritual to make the Aaronic priesthood into priests for Israel, but these people are made priests for the nations. Converted Gentiles don't have to be circumcised because they're not becoming priests. They're saved, they go to heaven, God works with them. The principles that we're looking at are applied to their lives in a different way, but they don't have to go through these rituals. Thus, they want to become part of the household of Abraham and take on this special duty. But circumcision makes a man a priest. And what does a priest do? Well, there are a bunch of things that we can say about priests, but one of the things that are important here is that the cutaway foreskin represents the son who is given to God. And so you move directly from circumcision, which is the event that God says at that time, Sarah will have a son and you'll name him Isaac. So where Isaac comes into being is at the time of circumcision. But then what happens to Isaac Isaac has to be given up. And so, cutting off the foreskin from the place of generation has an obvious connection to giving up your children to God. We do this in baptism. We bring our children and say, our children are born dead, and we need to give them to God, and God will bring them back to life again and give them back to us. That's what baptism means. But in the case of Isaac, Isaac's, what, 17 to 18 years old? And Abraham can't have him anymore. He has to give him to God so God can be his father. You're always having to give up your sons. Now, that's a general principle, but it's focused in circumcision because what God wants them to understand is that the offering which is given up, given up to God, sent up to God, sent up as well as given up, that offering has to be a son. Because the father is no good. Abraham is like Adam. He's no good. He's got sin. So he can't possibly be an acceptable offering. So he has to offer a son. The seed of the woman or the son. The offering who is going to be acceptable to God, who is going to be sent up or given up, has to be a son. Circumcision means that. Giving up the foreskin. Giving up your son. Now, if the son turns out not to be any good, like Isaac, then it'll have to be the next son, Jacob. And if he turns out not to be good enough, it'll have to be the next son, say, Joseph or Judah. And if Joseph has original sin, then it's going to have to be the next son until we get down to somebody who is not a sinner, who's Jesus, and he's the son who can be given up to God and take all the rest of us with him. So, if Adam is circumcised, the part that's cut off and given up represents Jesus, who is 
the son who is given up to God is equivalent to the foreskin. Now that's made plain in the sacrificial system because the animals that are sacrificed are sons. And that becomes real plain in Genesis 22 where Isaac, who is the son, is substituted with this ram. So the ram is equivalent of the son. But more to the point, Leviticus 1. I'm looking at the text here and I'm not sure he translates it the right way. The actual expression is a son of the herd in Leviticus 1. Your offering is a son of the herd. The animals that are brought are considered sons. you got different kinds of sons in the Bible. you got the sons from your loins. you got adopted sons. you got animals that are your sons. And it's the animal son who is offered up as a substitute. Priests sacrifice their sons. And since the animal, the son of the herd, represents the nation, the priest is sacrificing the nation, giving them up to God. So circumcision makes a man a priest, a priest for the other nations, and the way that works is to offer up sons. Here again, Jacob has to offer up his sons. He has to entrust them to God just as Abraham did. And that's going to be very problematic. He lets his sons go out and handle this Shechem situation and they destroy his reputation in the land. He has to let Joseph go and that's very painful. He has to let Benjamin go and that's extremely painful. Remember how he doesn't want to let Benjamin go back? He has to give up his sons. But then he finds something wonderful on the other side of that that he couldn't see in advance that Joseph turns out to be alive that Benjamin is there and that they're all saved from this famine and given a wonderful position of influence in the world. But he can't see that at the time he's told to give up his son. Those are all extensions of circumcision of this wound in the genitals in the socket of the thigh. Well, One other thing that we can say about a priest, and that is the duty of a priest is to obey meticulously what has been commanded, and thus a priest is to be a perfectionist. He can afford to be, and he's supposed to be. And I'm building on Leviticus here, but all those priests had to do was to do exactly and precisely what they were commanded to do, word for word. You will bring near a specific kind of animal. You will lean on it. Then you will kill it and take the blood out into a brass or clay vessel. And you will do this with the blood. You'll dash it against the side so it drips down. Or you'll put it on the horns of the altar. And you'll cut the animal up into certain pieces. And everything is meticulously described And that's all a priest has to do is exactly those things. And you'll do it exactly at this time of day, between the evenings. As soon as the sun goes down and before it's dark, between the evenings, you sacrifice the animal. As soon as the sun has gone down, sacrifice it. In the morning, as soon as you see the sun start to come up, sacrifice it. It's all very carefully, meticulously laid out. And there's no excuse for not doing it. You can't come around and say, well, I've got problem people over here who won't let me do this. Or I've got this situation over here. 
Now, you're not supposed to be able to say that. Now, if it's time for the Feast of Tabernacles and you're supposed to celebrate 70 bulls and they're just nobody brings any bulls and you're in an oppressed society, then you just can't do it. But as long as you're not providentially hindered from doing what you're supposed to do, all you have to do is obey. That's what a priest is. A priest is a child. We can put up a bunch of words here that are somewhat synonymous. A priest is... A palace slave does exactly what he's told, and he's parallel to a child. He's parallel to a child who is under authority and doing what he's told to do, and he's parallel to a general slave. Now, what has Jacob been up to this time? Jacob was circumcised, and Jacob did what his father told him to do, and he did what his mother told him to do, and he did what Laban told him to do. He's essentially been a child or a slave or a servant all these years. And he had responsibilities, and responsibilities were those that were given to him. You tell your son, go out and mow the grass. Well, there's no big decisions here. It doesn't take any wisdom to mow the grass. Oh, it takes a little bit of knowledge. You have to know to put the gas in. You have to know how to start it. You have to know not to run over certain rocks. But that's knowledge. It doesn't take great wisdom and sensitivity and discernment and insight to mow the grass. It usually doesn't take it to do the dishes. But I know of a situation where a child was told to wash by hand the silverware and he did it with a Brillo pad. So all the silverware has scratches on it now, permanently in it. Well, that took some wisdom and discernment, but the child didn't think about it, and the parents didn't think about it, and so this happened. But tasks like that don't take much. Now, as a matter of fact, if you're out there with sheep, you have to learn some things about sheep, what they'll do and what they won't do. If they'll all run together and follow each other over into a bad area, or if they'll eat poisonous things. You've got to have some knowledge, and this time of service as a priest, one who is under authority and only has responsibility to do precisely what he's told, you start to learn things that enable you to grow to the point where you can become a king. A king is different. king has to rule by wisdom. A king doesn't have a whole list of rules. There's no book of Leviticus over here after David or Saul is made king it just lists all the things the king is supposed to do. Well, you couldn't do it. I mean, how could you? You've got the laws given to Israel in Exodus and Deuteronomy, but those are very general. Some of them are quite specific, but there are all kinds of things that aren't covered. We studied these years ago, but they're more like wisdom laws. They're not a complete law code. The king has to rule by wisdom, and ruling as a king is much messier. But you acquire the kind of knowledge needed to be a king by being a priest. You learn how to rule by being a servant. You learn how to be an officer in the military by being a private for a while and seeing what it's like to be on the receiving end of orders. What we have here with Jacob when we get to this wound in the socket of the thigh is a move from circumcision, which is priestly, to this limp, which is kingly. So it's an advance. In Jacob's life at this point, he's going from being priest to being king, from being a slave 
to being some type of ruler, from being circumcised, which was painful but temporary, and you get over it, to having a wound that's permanent and is going to leave him limping for the rest of his life. That is a complex of things that extends the meaning of circumcision, of death, of not having power in the outward sense, extends it into a kingly area. I think I'm going to stop right there because the next section is exactly what we've gotten to and I think that there's too much here in the notes. But we can just skim it and we'll come back to it. In the middle, a priestly nation. We've now got a nation of people. A nation of priests means a kingdom of priests. They're both kings and priests. Notice some of the contrast. The limp is permanent, unlike the wound of circumcision. When God makes us kings, he puts us in a limping position. Kings cannot be perfectionists simply obeying simple rules. You can't do that as a king. We want to today. That's why we have so much bureaucracy. We want to have a rule written down for everything. So nobody has to think. Kings must rule by wisdom, and that is messy. It's messy. And that's because kings must bring along a whole community, not simply represent the community. See, all a priest has to do is be by himself, essentially, for much of what he does, and he represents everybody else, and so he can be in control. But if you've got a whole community of people, if you're Moses, you've got this whole bunch of people, and constantly problems are coming up. And if you're David, you got Joab next to you. Well, you can't get rid of Joab. You know, it would be nice to say, Okay, Joab, you sinned, you're out. But if you do that, there are all these ripple effects in society which create much greater problems in the future. So you just have to limp along with Joab until you wait for some proper time. Joab doesn't get his until after David's dead. Solomon finally deals with him. But David could never deal with him because if he had dealt with him, there would have been all these ripple effects that would have caused tremendous problems. You have to do the best you can. Priest doesn't have that problem. He's got an animal here. He's not dealing with human beings. He's dealing with animals. You just kill it. That's simple. Deal with human beings, it's messy. And so, this is a big advance in your responsibility from fooling with animals like David did when he was little. Sheep, no big problem. He's like Jacob. Now, David is mature. He's a king. He's got this whole nation of people. Moses says, I've got to carry all his people. They're constantly causing problems. And I've got to get them all through the wilderness and try not to lose any of them around the edges. That's a different thing. And that's what we're getting to when we go from circumcision to this limp wound. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.